This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio and iTunes. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Rose Fox. I'm a Senior Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly. And we're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, author Sabat Tahir discusses her smash debut in Ember in the Ashes. Then, Natasha Gilmore, PW Associate Editor for Children's Books, reports on this year's Children's Institute. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, powered by Nielsen BookScan. We've only got a few new things on the uh, fiction side. Um, just you know, Mostly it's the same books that have been on there for a while, including I was I was noticing that All the Light We Cannot See by Anthony Dorr has been on for 50 straight weeks. So it's about to hit that one-year mark and drop yep. off onto the backlist. But uh, it's it's pretty impressive that it's hung out there all this time. It's still at number three on the list. Yeah, exactly. Good, yep. good for him. Um, but on the debut front, uh, Nora Roberts' is The Liar is our new number one. Um, she always hits it right out of the park. Right. And uh, Roberts also writes as J.D. Robb, uh, which is you know, for mysteries. But uh, mm-hmm. there's definitely often a suspense element, a thriller element to her romantic novels uh, under the Nora Roberts name. And that's certainly the case with this one. Uh, it's about a woman uh, who is abandoned by her husband and finds out that uh, he never existed in a sense uh, she opens his safe deposit box and it's full of different ids and remnants of different lives uh and so she heads home you know to her, her hometown in the south uh and you know starts to fall in love with somebody else but she is threatened by danger when her husband's secrets come back to haunt her so um this is uh what what they call a novel with strong romantic elements not necessarily a romance novel, um, but uh, there's plenty of suspense in there as well. And, right. uh, you know, she's sold a comfortable 44,000 copies in its first week out. Right. Uh, you know, she is just a superstar and she keeps going. Uh, and number four uh, is Every 15 Minutes by Lisa Scottolini. And um, this, we gave a starred review. It says uh, she casts an unflinching eye on the damaged world of sociopaths in this exciting page turner. Uh, and so there's uh, a lot of personal involvement. Uh, it takes a very close focus on a, a psychiatric doctor uh, who's in the middle of going through a divorce. Uh, he's got a flirtatious friendship with a couple of women, um, but then uh, he's implicated in the murder of a young woman and uh, all of the dominoes mm-hmm. start to fall. Uh, and uh, we say many characters who seem to be gunning for Eric are likely candidates for a sociopathic diagnosis, but once the red herrings are dispatched, the identity of the culprit who plots his downfall is a genuine surprise. That's pretty impressive in a uh, thriller like this. So um, it's uh, number four on our hardcover bestseller list with about 12,000 copies sold. Well, I'm curious. We're just talking about Anthony Doerr, and uh, obviously just it was just announced uh, that he got the Pulitzer for fiction. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'd like to see – it was one of the interesting things to see – 
if the Pulitzer bumps the sales of an author or a book that has already been pretty high up on the list. I'm curious to see if uh, what his numbers might be next week. I'm so curious to see that, too. That. You know, that that was what I thought when I saw him on the list. I'm like, really? But, you know, been on for 50 weeks. Last week right. was actually number two. This week it's number three. But the sales are almost identical last week to this week, just under 16,000 copies, according to Nielsen Bookscan. Mm. Um, so next week we might keep an eye on it and see whether there's some increase. But uh, honestly, the guy doesn't need any help. No, not at all. <laughs> not at all. <laughs> uh, and finally, just a little bit further down the mm-hmm. list, uh, it's an, an interesting thing. I don't think this happens too often. All of the books that I'm noting this week are by women. Uh, and this one is down at number 19. It's The Dream Lover by Elizabeth Berg. And uh, this is a historical novel about the iconoclastic French writer we know as George Sand. Uh, and oh, the story right. is set in 1831 and talks about her uh, bohemian life in Paris. Our review says that uh, in its attempt to capture Sand's entire eventful life, the novel can get overly expository, but in the smaller, more intimate moments, Berg offers vivid, sensual detail and a sensitive portrayal of the yearning and vulnerability behind Sand's bold persona. So uh, this sounds like quite an interesting novel, and uh, it's there at number 19. Great. Well, on the nonfiction side, we have, I guess, a couple of self-help business books and a memoir or two. Uh, Number two is by Jack and Susie Welch. Uh, It's called The Real Life MBA, Your No BS Guide to Winning the Game, Building a Team, and Growing Your Career. We say in a review, business is the ultimate team sport, or so say the Welches. He's a former chairman and CEO of General Electric. And she's a former editor of Harvard Business Review. We say together they attempt to offer the, quote, uh, best learn it today, apply it tomorrow techniques, unquote, though the result comes up short. Um, we say though there are a few nuggets of wisdom to extract here. Readers will have to dig deep for them and may not find it worth the effort. But let's see if their uh, their readers are, uh, uh, you know, hopefully the readers are coming up with something good and they're selling pretty well. So next up on number three is by David Brooks, The Road to Character. Uh, we say the road to exceptional character may be unpaved and a bit rocky, yet is still worth the struggle. This is a book obviously on building character, uh, or at least on the idea of character. We say Brooks poignant and at times quite humorous commentary on the importance of humility in virtue makes for a vital, uplifting read. Moving down a little bit, number 10, still on the top 10 list, Miss Jessie's Creating a Successful Business from Scratch, Naturally, by Miko Branch. This cheerful, encouraging entrepreneurial account from Miss Jessie's, she's the co-creator branch details creation and growth of the natural hair care business sprinkled with inspirational nuggets for would-be entrepreneurs so got another business manual kind of self-help as well and uh finally for uh star trek fans and maybe fans of orange is the new black uh kate mulgrew uh comes out with her has come out with her uh, a memoir born with teeth and she is the actress in Star Trek Voyager and Orange is in the New Black, and we gave it a starred review. We say readers will savor Mulgrew's gift for erudite, honest writing and want to read more about her mesmerizing life. And um, that's what we have. My favorite anecdote about Kate Mulgrew is uh, that she was the choreographer for Labyrinth. Really? <laughs> it's, it's a thing that nobody knows about her, but uh, there, are some, there are some great pictures of her you know, directing some of the the wow. choreography for scenes with you know Im- imagine her standing next to David Bowie you know yeah, two entirely exactly. different oh that's pretty amazing science I didn't fiction know that. fantasy icons oh very cool 
Um, well, so that, that sounds great. And we gave that a star review. We did. It's at number 37, debut at number 37. I'm happy to see it on the list. Yeah, sounds great. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Sabah Tahir talks about divided loyalties and inner struggles. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Kathy Airway, the author of The Food of Taiwan, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today we've got Sabah Tahir on the line. Her new book is An Ember in the Ashes. Hi, Sabah. I'm so glad you could join us. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. So tell us about your book, which is your debut novel. Yes, it is my debut novel. Um, An Ember in the Ashes is a young adult fantasy. It is about a girl named Laya who's fighting for her family and a soldier named Elias who is fighting for his freedom. But before he can escape or desert, he is forced to participate in a competition to choose the next martial empire. When Laya and Elias's paths cross, um, they realize that their destinies are intertwined. So tell us a little bit more about Laia, you know, your main character. She's a scholar who, as you said, is living under the, the rule of the uh, martial empire. How, how did this character come about? And tell us a little bit more about what makes her tick. Sure. You know, Laia is not a brave character. Um, she's not super courageous. She's not really um, a Triss or a Katniss Everdeen. She's actually quite a coward when the book starts. And she really has to find a way to discover her courage as the book goes on. So her brother's taken from her. She doesn't know how to get him back. She doesn't know what to do to um, to even begin the process of getting him back. And she has to sort of work her way through her own fear um, and conquer it in order to achieve her ultimate goal of saving him. So um, this is really interesting. You, you you have a girl rescuing a boy. That's a little atypical for the genre, at least historically. Um, what what led you to throw that in there? Well, I am um, I'm the youngest of three kids. I have two older brothers, and they're my best friends. Um, in 2007, when I initially came up with the idea for the book, um, I read a story in the Washington Post where I was a copy editor. I read a story about these women in Kashmir uh, in South Asia who lost their brothers and fathers and sons and husbands to the local militia forces. Um, the, the local forces would just sort of take them and throw them into prison, and these women would never see them again. And the story really stuck with me because, you know, I have, I have brothers, and I couldn't imagine what it would feel like to just lose them like that, to have them picked up off the street and just disappeared. Um, so that's really where the inspiration for this for, for Laya's storyline came from, is this idea of, okay, well, what would I do if my brothers were taken? And when I realized, you know, living in this world, I probably couldn't do that much, I, it was really frustrating for me. And so then I, I decided to sort of create a fantasy world where I had a character who faces the same issue, um, but who can find a way to fight back. Wow, that's, that's incredibly moving. Uh, were, were there any stories coming out of Kashmir of women doing the same thing, going out and getting back their brothers and fathers? No, unfortunately, there weren't. It was um, it was a really sad story. It was it, it it was too difficult and actually too dangerous for them to even ask mm. what was happening. So they don't you know they didn't know if their family members were in prison, if they were alive, dead, being tortured. You know they they have no idea. And many of them spent years in this sort of weird you know, half state where they just don't know what's happened to their family. 
Wow. So I can definitely understand wanting to create a story where you could, um, in some sense, give those women a happy ending. Yeah, exactly. It was, um, like I said, it came out of, it was born out of frustration. So. And, and so now tell us a little bit about Elias. And I like the way it's Laya and Elias. I, I like the way the, uh, they sound similar. Yeah, that's actually, um, that's done on purpose because there's this sort of, I heard a story a long time ago that names that sound similar indicate a linked destiny. Um, it was something that I heard when I was um, visiting um, Pakistan, which is where my parents are from. Um, and so I always, I had that story in my head. So when I created their names, I, you know, I tried to make them sound a little similar because, like I said, they're linked destiny. So, um but Elias is a, um, you know, he's a soldier. He's been, you know, he's been in this um, very, very um, violent and difficult military academy since the age of six, and he is now 20. So he has been there for 14 years training. And this training is very similar to the Spartan Agoge training um, of, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years ago, which sort of made the Spartan warrior class. And, um, you know, he's under the, basically the, the boot of the commandant, who is a very, very difficult headmaster. She has no mercy, and she especially enjoys tormenting Elias for reasons that are, you know, revealed in the book. Um, and he really, he has a problem with what he's being asked to do. He knows it's wrong. Morally, he knows that the way his people, the marshals, treat other people, particularly the scholar class, is unfair. Um, but he doesn't quite know how to um, how to fight against that. He doesn't know how to fight against years of training. So a lot of his journey is is learning how to fight that fight. So it sounds like you're you're really working to complicate ideas of of power and what it means to be in power. Uh, you know, usually in fantasy stories, all the powerful people, especially in places of political power and military power, are men. Here you have a female commandant and you're also writing from the perspective of the conquered as well as the conqueror yeah i think um inside outside narratives have always been my favorite and just working at a newspaper where objectivity is so important and where getting multiple sides of the story is so essential to um delivering to your reader something fair um and something that's journalistically sound um all of that had a big impact on my writing i wanted to deliver different sides of the story because there's always more than one right it's never as simple as you know the conquered are completely innocent and the conquerors are completely horrible it's always more complicated than that so i wanted to portray that um how did you make the mental adjustment between writing from those two different perspectives well, at the post, I'm sorry, are you talking about between Laya and Elias? Yeah, between between Laya and Elias and more generally um, between the scholars and the marshals. I actually, um, I wrote the draft through and then I did an entire revision that was just each person's voice separately. So I took all the Laya chapters and did them in one go. I listened to music that made me think of her. I um, looked at images that made me think of her. I read um, a few slave journals and um, did, did more research about what someone like her might go through. And then I wrote her voice mm. and her chapters. 
And then I did Elias separately after that. And so I took Elias's chapters that I already had and I rewrote them to sort of match his tone. So I watched like Apocalypse Now and reread Heart of Darkness and, um, and, and listened again to music that made me think of Elias and his struggles and what he went through and then rewrote his chapters that, in a way that hopefully matched his tone and his perspective. So did you start out intending to write a, a YA book? I did not. Um, I didn't really think about what, where, what the age group was. I knew, I knew I wanted to do fantasy, so I knew the genre. I started out just sort of thinking, okay, I guess it'll be an adult fantasy. But um, as time went on, um, and I, you know, two things happened. One, I started um, reading some really great YA books. Um, and the second, the second thing was that the ages of the characters seemed to sort of fit better within the YA, um, YA age group as opposed to adult fantasy. And what was it about their age that, that drew you to them or that made you want to write about them at, at that age, at that time in their lives? When I was 17, when I was Lia's age, um, and even when I was 20, which is Elias's age, I was going through, you know, a lot of changes and um, becoming far more emotionally mature and really becoming the person who I am now. And I think we're always constantly developing. I mean, I hope. I hope that we continue to change and, you know, hopefully improve um, as we get older. But that, that was really a time where I made a big switch mentally in terms of, you know, who I, who I wanted to be as a person. And I wanted to kind of capture that same um, feeling in the book with these characters because they really are undergoing big changes and they're developing and they're going on these, not just these physical journeys, but these mental journeys. And I thought that was really important to to highlight in the book. You mentioned uh, knowing that you wanted to write fantasy from the start. Have you been a fantasy reader for a long time? Oh my goodness, yes. I love <laughs> fantasy. I like my favorite book as a little kid was um, the Random House Book of Fairy Tales, which is you know just a kids book with these beautiful illustrations. And it was it was the that book was the first sort of fantasy book I read. I think I was six or five or six when I read it. And um, it took me away from the world I was in. Um, it helped me escape. And a lot of the characters, you know, they were struggling. Um, you know, they had a lot of conflicts and they had people picking on them and they were trying to sort of fight back against that. And I was very similar as a kid. I didn't, you know, I lived in this very small town in the Mojave Desert. Um, I, I absolutely had friends there, but at the same time, I really felt like overall I didn't fit in. Um, and that, I, you know, my, my parents dealt with a lot of racism. I heard people say really terrible things to them and to me as a very young child. And I think when you grow up with that, um, it, it's just a lonely place to be as a kid. So books were my solace. You know, they were my escape. It was, it was, it was my safe place. And fantasy was, was the safest of all because it wasn't, you know, it's a completely different world. So. so do you see yourself as writing these books for um, kids who were like you, who were feeling isolated or alone and uh, needed some reassurance or a place to escape to? I certainly see the book as something that can give kids hope. Um, whether whether all they need is an escape, which I completely relate to, or whether they just want a story about people facing some really bleak circumstances, um, you know, and who find their way out of those circumstances, I think that it works for, for really any audience in that regard. And obviously a lot of adults read YA these days. Um, have you been hearing more, I guess, yeah, the book's just out, but 
Um, there are early copies out there. Have you been hearing from adults who like it too? I have. I've been hearing from both adults and teenagers. Um, I think one of the nicest things that happened was when I was at a librarian conference um, in Chicago called ALA Midwinter, um, one of the high school teachers I met gave me two letters from two of her students about what the book meant to them. And um, I actually took, <laughs> I took those letters up into my room and like read them and started crying because it was so moving that oh, something yeah. that, that I had like, something that I had written, you know, had that effect because that was me. When I was younger, I would read stories by my favorite authors and they were so inspiring and encouraging. Um, it was just really cool to have that come back around. It was like the best feeling. <laughs> We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Sabah Tahir, who's the author of An Ember in the Ashes. Uh, So, uh, as we said, there's some early copies of your book going out. You've gotten some great reviews and quotes. PW gave you a starred review. Were you expecting that kind of advanced praise? Not really. I didn't know what to expect. Um, you know, I think the book is, it deals with some pretty heavy issues and some very serious themes. So I wasn't really sure how people would react to it. I mean, obviously you always hope that it'll be good, but you just never know. So I was very, very pleasantly surprised. And and you had said this idea first came to you in 2007. So it's, it's about eight years ago now. I mean, what was the process like for you writing and for developing this? Uh, I mean, this is this is something a long time in coming. So, you know, it's great that you've been getting so much praise. What was the process like yeah. for you? Yeah, sure. Um, so, you know, I initially started by just drafting and world building. I was working, like I said, I was working at the Post. It was a full-time job, and I didn't have a ton of time. So I was coming home like late at night. I had an evening job. So I was coming home, you know, 1130, 1230 at night. And then I couldn't sleep. And so I would work on the book then. And I was just feeling out the world, feeling out the characters, trying to figure out what kind of story this was. And that went on for actually a couple of years. Um, in 2009, I had my first child and I had to, I took maternity leave. And then I had to decide, you know, do I want to go back to work or do I want to stay home with the little guy? And my husband and I, my family and I were all talking and um, my husband really encouraged me to write the book. And he said, you know, you've been wanting to do this forever and ever. Um, you just, just bite the bullet, just do it and, and come up May, you know, hopefully, hopefully it'll work out. <laughs> um, so I, you know, I said, okay. And I decided to quit my job at the post and write part time. And, um, you know, it's hard to write when you have a little baby, you do it when your baby is napping and when he's, you know, chilling and when he's not demanding your attention. So it was very sort of hit and, hit and miss in terms of time, those those first few months. And then eventually I, you know, was able to find a little bit of daycare and, you know, work like a good solid between 10 and 20 hours a week. And that was really great. And I started really making progress on the book. Um, 
in 2012, I moved to the Bay Area. I was living in D.C. before, and I moved to the Bay Area. And that's when I really realized that, like, if I want to finish this, I'm going to have to commit some more time. So I just started finding any pockets of time that I could. Um, I started doing really heavy research. Um, I, I did interviews um, with you – know, I'm not a warrior, <laughs> and one of my characters is. So I did interviews with modern-day warriors, um, and I, I poured all of that into the book, and then – in 2013, you know, I'd gone, by that point, I'd gone through, God, the dozens of drafts, it felt like, and I was to a place where I just wasn't sure if it was ready or not. Um, and I had a, a, a friend who's a freelance editor, and I asked her to read it, and she did, and she said, this is it, you're, you're good, you're ready, you can send it out. So um, that's the the nutshell version. <laughs> that's, that's a pretty big nutshell. So um, tell us a little <laughs> bit about how the different places that you've lived, you said you grew up in the Mojave Desert, um, you lived in Washington, D.C., now you're in the Bay Area. How, how did all of those places shape the, the story? Was there any influence there? I think the biggest influence was the desert. Um, I didn't expect that when I started writing the book. It I almost didn't even realize I was writing it in the desert. It was, it was always there, but it was in the background. And then I started thinking about just how the desert affected me. You know, the desert, the Mojave Desert in particular, it's the high desert, and it is very, very beautiful. But it's a place of extremes, you know, extreme cold, extreme heat. Um, it's very stark, and it can be really scary. Um, I sometimes talk about how sometimes it feels like the desert can either really love you um, or it can really hate you. Um, and I try to incorporate that into the book. And I think that's the strong, that's the strongest, um, sort of setting, um, in, in, in my life that had an effect on me was, was the desert. Um, DC affected me more just in terms of the stories I read at work, you know, about not just what happened in Kashmir, but child soldiers and the Sudanese genocide and the wars um, in the Middle East, all of those things had a big impact on my writing. And then the Bay Area is just a wonderfully supportive, there's a wonderfully supportive artistic community here. There's tons of writers. Um, I'm in a debut group. Um, you know, we sort of band together as YA writers um, who are all debuting in 2015 and we support each other. Um, so I'm in... Um, I'm, I'm in a group like that, and there's tons of fellow debut writers in this area, so that's been really wonderful. So that's more, it's less, less of an impact on the book and more of an impact on my personal well-being, you know, just having other writers around. How did you, well, two questions. How did you find yourself in San Francisco after D.C.? And secondly, uh, tell me more about this debut group. I mean, is this something that is in other cities, or is this something specific to San Francisco, and how did you find them? Yeah, um... I moved to San Francisco because of my husband's job. He um, has a startup, and he decided to move it to the Bay Area since this is the place for startup uh, uh, startup companies. Um, so I just was like, I'm cool. I can go wherever. So I you know, came to California. Um, the debut group is actually national and international. It's called the Fearless Fifteeners. Um, we are not actually completely fearless, but we like to think we are. And it's... Um, it's a tradition um, amongst the YA community. Actually, there was a 2014 debut group, a 2013 debut group, and I think it goes back a few years before that, too. And um, what happens is the first few people who sell books for a particular year, like 2015, just start a group together online and start reaching out to other writers. And then, you know, you sort of hear about it through the grapevine and um, 
um, join up online, and then everyone communicates through Twitter and email. Um, so I actually have friends in New York, in North Carolina. Um, a, a, one of my friends um, is actually coming to my launch from North Carolina, and I met her through a debut group. So, you know, it, you, you end up meeting all these people who are going through the same thing as you, and I think that shared experience creates a bond. That's just wonderful. And um, it's when, really great. <laughs> when you, when you worked at the, I'm sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I'm just, I was just saying it's really, it's really cool. Like I, I, I didn't expect that that would be the case. I just, I, I wrote in a vacuum. I didn't even really know that there were groups like this, but mm. I think for anybody who's writing um, right now, if you're writing YA, you know, go out and find, find a group of other YA authors. It's, it's really wonderful to have that support. I was going to ask if you had any advice for debut authors. I mean, clearly it, it, it was a bit of a long, slow road for you. Yeah. You know, my advice is really to, um, one, if you are a debut author, find your debut group. There is a 2016 group, for instance. I'm pretty sure it's called the Sweet 16. Um, and I'm sure there will be a 2017 group for books that are coming out then. So that's one thing. But really, um, just keep writing. I mean, I think that, it's a really basic piece of advice, but when you are struggling, when your drafts are going poorly, when you think you're the worst writer in the world, when your family keeps saying, hey, how's that book coming? And you keep having to say, oh, it's not done yet. All you can do is keep going. It's like, it's that famous Winston Churchill quote, which is, you know, when you're in hell, keep going. <laughs> like, same, same idea for writing. When you were at the Washington Post, and I, I just, like a little nuts and bolts on writing uh, question, what was your beat? And did that, how did that work either in tandem or against your creative writing? Um, I worked, like I said, as an editor on the international desk. So I did not write articles. Um, I'm, I almost exclusively edited them. Um, and I think when you read such great journalism on a daily basis, you do really understand the basics of creating good sentences, good structure, using good grammar. And I don't think a lot of new writers understand how important that is. It's an essential, it's a basic of, of writing. Um, and, you know, just from talking to, you know, particularly younger writers who, who are hoping to break in one day, um, I think re reading the newspaper is actually super helpful because it is, it's sort of the best, most basic kind of writing. It gets the information across well, especially if it's a good newspaper. Um, and it teaches you, like you said, the nuts and bolts of the writing craft. And that's really important. That's, that's where I learned it, you know, um, was, was through reading news stories every single day. So uh, you already mentioned that you listened to a lot of music while you're writing your books, music for specific characters. Um, and you've also created a lot of different musics, uh, music mixes, I think over 80 of them. So tell us a little bit about your relationship with music. Sure. Um, when I was, I think, 10 or 11, my parents cut off the cable in our house. Um, and they told my brothers and I that we needed to study more um, and stop watching as much TV. So um, our natural response was to not study more, but to find other ways of occupying ourselves. And so my way of occupying myself was to listen to the radio. And there was a classic rock and independent rock station that I got way out in the desert. And I used to listen to it nonstop on my like big crappy old stereo. Um, and I was at that really particular age where music really starts to speak to you, I think, which was, like I said, around 11 or 12. And 
I just found that all these rock songs understood me, you know, far better than than anyone else. You know, like Led Zeppelin and Pink mm-hmm. Floyd and Stone Temple Pilots and Nirvana, you know, like those lyrics were, were what I was feeling at the time. So music became very much like like books, like fantasy books. Music became a safe place for me. Um, and I just... I also played piano as a kid. I don't remember anything. Sorry, mom. But um, <laughs> I, I did play piano for 10 years and um, sort of developed a more like, I don't know, theoretical love for music because of that. So you could combine those things. And anytime I was really struggling, music was the thing that I turned to to help me. Um, even when I was struggling with my writing, I would always turn to music. I have like certain songs that I'll pick. And anytime I'm struggling with my writing, like I'll listen to one of, you know, maybe two or three songs, and it, it will always help me sort of get my brain going in the right direction. Wow, that sounds like a, a magical cure for writer's block. Do you want to share what those songs are in case they work for anyone else? Sure. Or do you think it's too personal? Sure. Um, I don't know if they're, they'll cure anyone else, but there is a um, there is a version of Another Brick in the Wall um, on Pink Floyd's live album, The Delicate Sound of Thunder. <laughs> that I really love. Um, and I think that that always gets my brain going. Um, and then I always listen to a lot of angels and airwaves. That's a sort of an independent rock band. They always get me going. Um, and then, um, uh, nine inch nails is another favorite. And it's sort of like, it's almost like it's electronica, um, and rock sort of mixed together. It's also really good workout music. If you need to get get inspired to the gym, which I really like, I should use it for that, but I I don't. (laughs) So you said that as you were creating your characters, you listened to music uh, specifically for them. What, what, what music were you listening to? Give us an example for each of your characters. I had a playlist for An Ember in the Ashes that was almost 200 songs long or around 200 songs long. And all of those songs have labels on them for the different characters. Um so, Laya, for instance, there's a song called Blow Away by a, uh, a woman named A Fine Frenzy, and I listened to that for her. Um, there's a song called Ghost City by a guy named Thomas, um, Thomas Azier, and I listened to that while writing certain scenes in the book. I listened to Green Day for Elias. <laughs> um, I listened to um, Nine Inch Nails when I was writing about the Academy and all the difficult things that happened there. Um, so it was it was all over the place. Um, I have some um, I have some country music on that on that mix, and um, I have a lot of classical too, actually. So all sorts of stuff, really. So what's next? Are there sequels coming to this book, uh, or are you going to embark on different new projects? I hope that there are sequels. I don't know yet. Um, I think Penguin is really waiting to hear reader reaction um, before we move forward with anything. So I have a sequel in my head. It's really all I've been able to think about. Um, so I'm hoping that I'll get the chance to write it. And uh, if if Penguin, for some unfathomable reason, says no, have you considered self-publishing? Is that a route you've thought about taking? You know, I haven't thought about that yet. I'm sort of, I think I'm so in the weeds with book one right now that mm-hmm. I'm kind of putting off thoughts of book two or any potential sequels until book one is sort of out in the world and, and dealt with. Well, good luck with that. We certainly hope that it goes well. 
Thank you so much, guys. I really appreciate it. We've been talking with Sabata here, and you can find her book, An Ember in the Ashes, in stores right now. And uh, clearly she needs you to go out and pick it up so we can find out what happens (laughs) in book two. Thank you so much for joining us, Sabah. Thank you, Rose. Take care. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Children's Books Associate Editor Natasha Gilmore takes us to Children's Institute, so stay tuned. I'm Kevin Sessoms, author of I Left It on the Mountain, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week, we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors, and today, Natasha Gilmore, PW's Associate Editor for Children's Books, is here to tell us all about Children's Institute. Hello, Natasha. Hi, everybody. Hi. It's nice to have you here. So Thanks. this was the third ever Children's Institute. Can you tell us a little bit about what it is and who was there? Yeah. Um, so it was the third. Uh, you know, there are, like, big trade shows, and so this is a, a good one to kind of break out um, specifically children's programming. Um, so there's a lot of excitement around that. Um, and there are about 200 booksellers there from all across the country. And then, yeah, a lot of it is like kind of like a working conference. It was uh, about 43 and a half hours is how the ABA described it. Um, and a lot of panels about like how to sell more books, essentially. And then, of course, there's the big um, author reception. So the booksellers get to meet the um, authors of the big kind of fall books directly, which is always really great to make personal connections with them. Uh, so, yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun. Uh, so these are these are mostly booksellers with specialty shops? Yeah, a lot of them are specialty shops, but then there are a lot of um, booksellers and book buyers from bookstores that um, themselves specialize in children's, but they're in more general bookstores. But there were a lot of children-specific bookshops represented. I don't, I don't think I knew that there were that many. Oh, yeah, there's gobs. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, just to name a few, like uh, I know Amy Ilkers is there from Red Balloon in uh, St. Paul. Um, and then, yeah, there's a couple. There's one in Haverford, Children's Book Works. So, yeah, there's quite a few everywhere. <laughs> so so give us a little lay of the land. What, where was it held? It was in Pasadena. What was the uh, what was the building like, and what was it like walking around? Uh, it was beautiful and sunny. I'm really sorry you guys had crappy, rainy weather here. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, um, I love the thunderstorms, personally. Oh, uh, nice. Yeah, it was the opposite of that. Lots of palm trees. Pasadena is beautiful, very uh, nice city, um, but we were all in the... Hilton, not seeing the pool or the sun very much, but Aww. it was a good time. Um, but yeah, the weather was beautiful. It was really nice. And the conference this year was preceded by the LA Times Book Festival, mm-hmm. um, which was right. massive. And um, I did not partake myself, but a lot of the booksellers at the conference did. So they got to check out the open LA weather before that. Oh, great. <laughs> so yeah, so were they kind of exhausted at the start? I mean, it was a lot to take in from what I was hearing from booksellers, but I think they were, they're such an energetic, excited bunch. And the conference had so much going on that was keeping them really excited. A lot of really great authors and things to do. So they were, they were happy. <laughs> So um, what was the space like? About how many people attend? Uh, this year, they, they estimated about 200 booksellers, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, lots of like authors and publishers. I'm not sure what the author count was. I think around 50, maybe. I don't know. There were a lot. And uh, and is it in a conference center? Or? Yeah, it, um, it was in a, the Hilton um, in Pasadena. And like the ground floor was all like conference rooms and such. So. So um, tell us a little bit about the program. You said it's it's more for booksellers than for authors, so a lot of education? Yeah, um, there were a pretty big variety of panels, like everything from like very tactical stuff, like how to um, start uh, 
doing birthday parties at your bookstore uh, for oh, for wow. children. Yeah, to things like how to sell more diverse books to your neighborhood, um, or even bring b- b- books in that you can sell um, if that's not like you know an area of your strength. So yeah, it was a lot of really kind of diverse programming um, about a lot of topics, but definitely like aimed at at helping booksellers sell more books. Oh, that's a great idea too. I've never thought of having a uh, kids book a birthday party at a at a bookstore. Yeah, one one commenter on that panel um said that you know it's kind of like the new thing that everybody has to try and find some like the, the place nobody's had a party at yet because right. the kids <laughs> go to a lot of the same parties and right. so it is a really kind of unique thing and um yeah, so that was kind of a random thing but a lot of information for bookstores to try to get oh, in on that great. man maybe i'll have my next birthday party at a bookstore right? <laughs> take the rare book room at the strand yeah. oh nice you know yeah. what i'm planning yeah. my daughters right now and this sounds like a great idea you should see if books of wonder does it yeah <laughs> exactly I'm sure, I'm sure they yeah. do um so uh, tell tell us a little bit more about the other events that took place um what for me was really exciting, and I could tell that the booksellers were also really excited about, was um, a tour of the Romans Bookstore, which is this massive, I think it's like 30,000 square feet bookstore. And that was the one thing that everybody was kind of commenting on, was just the, like the luxurious amount of space that they had. I mean, even their some of their overstock shelves were empty, which as a former bookseller was just, wow. <laughs> um, but it was a gorgeous, gorgeous space, and it was really cool. Um, their uh, buyer, uh, one of their buyers, um, was on a panel and kind of talked a little bit about her philosophy and then gave a, a tour for people but a lot of people just kind of wandered around and shopped um so that was a really big highlight um and then obviously like meeting the authors is always exciting there were a lot of really great speeches uh john Sheska was there and he inter- um introduced mac barnett and jory john which were always really fun and they talked about the 826 national program mm-hmm. which is how they actually met um as friends uh, Jeff Kinney was the opening keynote, and he talked about um, the bookstore he's opening, so he's soon going to be a bookseller. Um, Where is he opening this? It's, in, it's right outside of Boston. It's in Massachusetts, a bookshop called An Unlikely Story. Oh, that's so cool. He yeah. was one of our very earliest guests oh, on the, nice. the radio yeah. show. Yeah. Maybe we should get in touch with him and ask him to come that's back. That's a great idea. Talk yeah. about the bookstore, sure. His new venture. It's a really, like, he, in the keynote, he talked a lot about, um, you know, what he's trying to do to kind of set up this space, and he had, like, some really cool kind of anecdotes about it and um he's really trying to engage the community to kind of be take a lot of ownership over this space there's going to be a co-working space upstairs it's going to be his um working studio and then downstairs there's gonna be like lots of events and you know of course like a little wimpy kid corner and sure <laughs> yeah so it, and it's really cool one of my favorites is he had this slide um when they put this steel in for like the foundation or i don't know how buildings are built but uh he had all the kids from the neighborhood came and like signed their names on the steel that's going to be like the foundation of this bookstore oh, which i thought was cool. so cool so they kind of yeah. feel like all these kids have like some ownership over the space which i think is really a cool idea that's very smart. Yeah. So you said you're a former bookseller, which I, I didn't yeah. actually know. Did you feel like um, the programming would have appealed to you in your bookselling days? Did it seem like really on point? Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, you always find a lot of really useful information from the panels, but also just meeting other bookstores. And um, I mean, you know, the panels will start a conversation, but then you get a lot of really great ideas, things that you would never have thought of if you hadn't heard how another bookstore does it. Um, and then also, you know, like as in any sector of this industry there's always a million books that you haven't read yet and it's always great to have passionate people kind of point out the ones that you should really make time right. for so that was that's always exciting to kind of see the booksellers like what they're excited about yeah oh great yeah were there any titles that were getting particular buzz yeah um so for like kind of um 
there's a big author reception and so that you know everybody can get books signed and meet some of the authors that are uh, there and um the ones that were getting a lot of buzz are sarah Dessen, classic she's got a new book coming out uh saint anything this fall so that one was getting a lot of excitement john Sheska was a big draw for his um the latest book in his um frank einstein series mm-hmm. um and then jewel parker rhodes was there for her new book Bayou Magic, and um, she was, you know, a lot of people were really excited about the book, and she also did the closing keynote, which uh, everybody said just brought down the house. I missed it; I was on my way to the airport, but oh, yeah, but um, so that was another big one. And then Marla Frazee's new picture book, which is Wordless, which I think will be kind of interesting. Um, the Farmer and the Clown. Um, she did a talk with her editor Alan Johnston about that, and so it was a, a big draw. And then Ray Carson's new one is a standalone "Walk on Earth, a Stranger," and a lot of booksellers are really excited to get their hands on on galleys. I I just may have stolen a copy <laughs> of, of that from from Diane, and I'm nice. I'm excited. Yeah, her yeah. stuff is terrific. Excellent. Um, and then for debuts too, there were um, they have an Indies introduced panel, and so um, a lot of the booksellers had read a ton of debuts and were really excited about a lot of titles. Um, Nicholas Gannon's got one called The Doldrums. Uh, it's kind of a middle grade sort of adventure series. It seems really kind of sweet. Um, Everything Everything by Nicola Yoon was getting a lot of like raves, and she was um, at the We Need Diverse Books kind of opening uh, reception and she was signing books and people were really excited to meet her uh book scavenger by um jennifer shimolis bertman i believe her name is um that one uh was getting a lot of people were really excited when i was talking to people in the galley room they were it's, it's a kind of bookish middle grade story and people were re- like really really excited about that one and then um scholastic hosts a meet and treat party as they do at uh winter institute and at that event Alex Gino made uh, their first appearance um, to support uh, their book, George. And David Levithan introduced, um, and like, oh my gosh, that one just, everybody was like almost in tears and was really excited about this book. And um, immediately after that, um, you know, like people were kind of um, socializing beforehand, but after that speech, like everybody just like crowded and was like really like excited about this book. I think it's going to be a really, really big one. Um, It's a middle grade about a transgendered girl. Um, who wants to be, um, wants to kind of uh, assert her identity, but also be, uh, to play the part of um, Charlotte in Charlotte's Web in a production that the school is putting on. And so it seems like, I don't know, just a really, really cute story. Um, and also the, the story behind the book being made was kind of a, I don't know, it was really exciting. Like booksellers were really buzzing about it. So Wow. So yeah. a, a lot of exciting stuff happening, especially uh, on on the diversity front, it sounds like. Definitely. Yeah, it was a big topic. There were quite a few panels about it. Um, and I think it's something that is on everybody's minds. I think it's the books um, that are being published are starting to kind of reflect more diversity. And I think people are being more open about kind of demanding it from publishers. And um, there was a lot of interest in trying to be more mindful of it and to try and learn how to hand sell and like seek out books to kind of make a more diverse, you know, uh, stock for booksellers. I think so. It was, it was encouraging. Oh, wonderful. Well, Natasha, thank you so much for coming on and talking with us. Thank you so much for having me. It was really (laughs) nice to have you in here and hopefully you'll come back and be a a regular guest. Oh, sure. No problem. (laughs) (laughs) We really appreciate it. And now a final word from our sponsors. Hi, my name is Joshua Davis. I'm the author of Spare Parts, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. And that's it for today's show. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for an interview with Eric Jerome Dickey, author of One Night. 
We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books in the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can find this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio on our website at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and also on iHeartRadio and iTunes, available for you to listen absolutely free. Check the site every week for a brand new episode, giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 